The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Our scripture this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I encourage you to turn to, we're actually going to be in Matthew 18 as our main text this morning. We're eventually going to get there. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been having this short series on kingdom living. We've been looking and just acknowledging the fact that we're called to be salt and light to this world. We are called to be uniquely different from the world that we live in and yet intimately involved in this world. And we're called to be uniquely different and yet intimately involved because the Lord gives us an opportunity. He gives us a command That as members of his kingdom, as children of God, as uh, redeemed individuals, we are given the opportunity to affect the world around us, to push back the darkness, to be salt that uh, changes this world that we live in. And in this short series that we've looked at, we've looked at three basic emotions, characteristics, gifts that affect the world around us. Two weeks ago, we got to look at hope. This steadfast hope, this three-dimensional hope that's oriented towards the future, grounded in the past and um, sustained in the present, this hope that people look at us and go, where does this come from? This hope that is out of this world that is supernatural. Last week, we got to look at love. We're called to display love. We're called to display love because 1 John 4, 12 says, "No no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Essentially saying that as we love each other, the love and the glory of God is proclaimed to this world through our love to each other and to the world. Well, this week, we're going to finish off this series and we're going to look at forgiveness. Now, we've actually been looking at this through our men's retreat this past weekend. We had three sessions on that. You can hear those probably this week. We'll put those up on our podcast stream and website if you want to hear all of those discussions. But this week, we focused on forgiveness in three different aspects. We first started by looking at the gift of forgiveness, then we looked at the heart of forgiveness, and then last night we looked at the power of forgiveness. And one of the things that we identified in this uh, scope, and I just want to somewhat apologize to the guys who were there, this is going to be some review, maybe this will um, better reinforce some of the concepts that we looked at, but again, this topic was so important and, and it so struck my heart and soul that I just wanted to bring it to all of us, that one of the things that we looked at is forgiveness is a foreign concept in the world that we live in. 
If you just look at the way that our culture has gone, there's no room for forgiveness. We don't forgive people, we cancel people. We don't allow people to change. We say that once you're stuck in one particular um, thought process and, or once you're stuck in some particular uh, um, declaration uh, uh, like CRT, then you can't change. There's even like the Me Too thing, the Me Too movement, hashtag Me Too. There's, there's no way to look at somebody who definitely has done something wrong and say, we forgive you. But we also identify that even in church culture, even in Christian circles, forgiveness is almost a dirty word. Forgiveness is not something that's offered because we love to speak in us and them language. But us and them language, when it comes to the topic of forgiveness, does not work. It's interesting. Our world is filled with a constant need for the atoning of sins. It's filled with the constant need for forgiveness, but we can also see this lack of forgiveness because when we look at the guilt and the shame that's found in this world, what we see is that there's no way to overcome that guilt and shame. The world's in a strange position. It feels like sinners, but it's not even having a name for it. It doesn't have a way to identify this is sin that needs to be forgiven. There's a need for moral absolution. There's a need for forgiveness But somehow, because we've removed any language of justice, this absolution, this forgiveness is not possible. In one sense, it's because the world has rejected the whole idea of God. Because there's no language of God. Because there's no concept of God. Because they don't want to have an idea of God. There's no idea for forgiveness. Because here's what's crazy to think about. The idea of forgiveness comes directly from God. Any display of forgiveness, any display is a display of the image of God. Just think about it. There's no concept of forgiveness outside of the human race. No other aspect in creation does forgiveness exist. Animals don't forgive. Animals, it's a, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, is it not? The idea of forgiveness is an image of, is a representation of the fact that we bear the image of God. Humans are the only ones capable of forgiving. So in this series, as we've been talking about how to, to, have, how to be salt and light to this world, how we can be uh, the people of God and members of the kingdom of God, we've been looking at how we can best display God's glory and power. And what I can say with this third installment is one of the best ways to display God's glory and power is through our forgiveness. One of the um, concepts that I often think about because it, it often comes up in conversations just with people and as elders and, and around the church is what are the primary concerns of the church, what are the secondary concerns of the church, and then what are the tertiary concerns of the church. The primary concerns of the church are those things that if you take this away from the church, the church no longer is the church. These are the things that I'm going to fight for. I, I don't fight for a lot of things. I'm going to fight for these primary things because if we lose these primary things, we lose it all. Then, this, then there are the secondary things of the church. These are those ideas, those concepts, those theological things that you know we can debate over um, one way or the other, but, it's, but whichever side we pick isn't going to kick us out of heaven. Then there are the tertiary things of the church. These are the things that we can agree to disagree or you know, they don't even matter, like the color of the carpet. That's why we didn't put out a poll say what, which color of the carpet would you like? I think we did a pretty good job of picking this. But often I go down to what are, what are the primary things of the church? What are those things that we gotta grasp onto and say, these cannot be lost? 
Well, one of the great ways to kind of identify those prim- primary things is to look at the creeds and the confessions of the church. In what might possibly be the first creed that was ever written, the Apostles' Creed, all the way back 300, 400 AD, so we're talking you know, 100 to 200 years post-Christ, the, the uh, members of the church, the uh, grandchildren of the disciples and apostles got together and decided these are the primary things that we have to hold on to. I want to read for us the Apostles' Creed this morning. It's a really great reminder. And, and you know, on this day, there are hundreds of churches around the world, thousands of churches around the world, hundreds of churches even here in America that have read this together as a declaration of this is what we believe. So I just want to focus our minds on the fact that what we hold on to here and what we trust here is, is not unique to us. We are a part of it, the universal church. But here's what the Apostles' Creed declares. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended to hell, rose the third day, uh, the third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church, think universal there. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What's interesting is that right alongside the glory of God, authority of scriptures, sufficiency of Christ, is the declaration of the forgiveness of sins. That's how important this concept is. It's a primary reality. If there is no forgiveness of sins, all is lost. I hate reliving the shame of my mistakes. I'm just like you. I have so many moments where I'll sit down and I'll just think about it. I was like, I did that. And that just cringeworthy, that shame can just come over top of me where I was like, I can't believe that I made that childish mistake. Or let's get even worse, I get, that, that, that shame goes, I can't believe that I did that damaging sin. I hate reliving that shame and that guilt. But here's the beauty of forgiveness, if we can just start by looking at the application of this. Forgiveness takes away the guilt. When I think about those things that I did that I have been forgiven of instead of feeling that shame and that guilt, I feel joy. Because I think to myself, I was forgiven for that. That's not something that I have to hide. That's not something that I'm trying to cover up. That's not something that I'm trying to self-justify myself in. I was forgiven that. Here's what's interesting, though, about forgiveness. There's a tension in forgiveness. Attention and forgiveness, and I think this is why the world doesn't know how to handle forgiveness, because if it removes God, this tension is something that humans can't figure out. Here's the tension in forgiveness. Forgiveness comes a couple of steps. It comes by fully acknowledging the weight of an offense. It comes from pursuing justice for the victim. And it comes from declaring mercy upon the perpetrator. 
But just here, there's like this unresolvable tension in that as it relates to humans because justice and mercy seem to be at odds, right? How can you fully acknowledge the weight of an offense, pursue justice, but then declare mercy? That doesn't seem to work out in this side of heaven and with us. But the reality is that this tension has always been seen in God. And this tension is not something that God runs from. In fact, this tension is something that, that God has held onto and has only in the way that he can figured out a path through it. Think about Exodus 34. This uh, took place when Moses, after spending so much time with God, having met him at the burning bush and had to ask him very basic questions like, what is your name? After having seen all of the 10 plagues and, and the Red Sea and they had a journey together so much, finally asked God, I want to see you. I, I know you. I've seen your power. We've had conversations, but I want to see you. God, can I see your face? And God knowing is going, that's not possible. I'm a holy God. You're a sinful man. That holiness and sin is, doesn't really work well together here. So God said, okay, you can see me, but you can only see my backside. And the only way that you can see me is if I tuck you in the cleft of the rock up on the mountain. So Moses wakes up one morning knowing I get to see God today. Walks up on Mount Sinai and God finds the perfect place, the perfect rock, the perfect covering for him and passes by him. And this is what, this is how that scene was described by both Moses and God. This is Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before him and, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Merciful God, a gracious God, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Such an important text. Because what we see in here declared upon us is that God is gracious and slow to anger, offering mercy, but he demands Justice, not desires justice, not is gonna ask for justice, demands justice. My wrath for your sin must be satisfied. How is this possible? Well, in one sense, that question of how can God demand justice and still offer mercy has been the first theological question or was the first theological question both asked and answered because all of the systems and all of the images of the Old Testament are established to provide an answer to that thing and they're established to provide forgiveness. One commentator said this, at the heart of the Old Testament worship then is forgiveness without it, without it there is no relationship with God but what's the basis of our forgiveness? I can describe it in one word. And it's the basis for both God's forgiveness and it's also the basis for our forgiveness. Substitution. Substitution is the basis for forgiveness both before God and before each other. Allow me to describe this to you. Genesis 3, first sin. Adam and Eve, after taking a bite of the apple, woke up. Realized, spiritually speaking, they were already awake, but woke up and realized, I'm naked. 
they woke up to their guilt and shame. They woke up for the first time and went, hold up, I'm not safe. What did they do? They immediately ran and made themselves loincloths out of fig leaves. Now we had a whole discussion about just the, the worthlessness of fig leaves because all of these man-made objects of us trying to cover ourselves up. You can go listen to the audio. I think that was, what, session three, guys? I forget. Uh, that, that's an interesting discussion of how we try to use these man-made objects to try to cover us, those fig leaves. But how does God, what does God do? He looks at them and says, that ain't gonna work. That's a nice try, guys. Fig leaves are not enough to cover your shame, your nakedness, your sin. So what does he do? He kills an animal. He provides a substitute for their man-made, self-made ways of trying to cover themselves, justify themselves. He provides a substitute. Here's an animal. Here's a death. Use this. I know I'm gonna jump from the beginning to the end, but the greatest display of the glory of God is seen in the substitutionary death of Christ upon the cross. Because we are just like Adam and Eve until Christ covers us. We are trying to cover ourselves with man-made fig leaves. Maybe let's try moralism. Maybe let's try perfectionism. Maybe let's try good works. Maybe let's try, I don't know, self-flagellation here. Like, let's try something else. But what does God say? No, the only sufficient covering is a substitute that is Christ here's why I start here it's because of that substitute Christ that we are forgiven and it is from that substitute Christ that we forgive others when we have an understanding of how forgiven we are we can walk forward with others in a forgiving manner I mean, I, I, I acknowledged with the guys at, at the beginning of the weekend, and I'll just acknowledge this now, this subject of forgiveness is inherently personal for all of us. There's not one of you out there this morning that could say, I don't need to, I, I've, I haven't had to struggle with this. I've never had to forgive anyone. No one has ever harmed me. No one has ever wronged me. I don't struggle with this whatsoever. No, each of us. If we could sit down and interview every single person, each of us have at least one, but let's be frank, many moments when somebody hurt us. Why? Because we live in a broken and a desperate world. People hurt each other. They disappoint each other. They take advantage of us. They wrong us. People lie, cheat, and steal from us. They break our hearts. They break their word. People do the unthinkable. And we got real personal this weekend. I mean, this is mothers and fathers and wives and children and coworkers and employers and family members and friends and pastors. Hurt us. And so we then have to ask ourselves, how do we move forward you know, if, if, if we're basing our forgiveness on who a person is or what a person does, very quickly we're going to get to points when we're not going to af- offer forgiveness because that person isn't worth it. I'm telling you, we've lived through some stuff that's just painful. That, it's not worth it. It's not worth forgiving it. There's no way possible for us to look at that person and go, you deserve forgiveness because demands justice but what can happen is when that we when we allow our vertical forgiveness that substitutionary death of Christ that forgiveness that we have from God when we allow our vertical forgiveness to impact our horizontal forgiveness 
we then are able to look at a fellow broken sinner and say, I didn't deserve to be forgiven by Christ. So I can easily forgive you. Just as we're moving on, I just want to talk about briefly again, I'm putting a ton of stuff into this sermon and I'm trying to get done by 1130. What, what, what forgiveness is not? I want to talk there. What isn't forgiveness? Many of us functionally have defined forgiveness as this, forgetting the offense. Like one, a, a, a phrase I heard a lot in my child is, forgive and forget. Time will heal all wounds. Just give it enough time and it'll be okay. That is, that doesn't work on a number of levels and it's not biblical. Biblical forgiveness is not forgetting the offense. I mean, Psalm 103, because some people go here, Psalm 103, 12 says this, God looks at our sin as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. But removing and forgetting are not the same thing. God doesn't forget what we have done. It's impossible with God, right? He knows all things. There's nothing that he's ever not going to know. There's, a, there's nothing that he's, yeah, he knows all things. What we see is that God no longer remembers us according to our sins. God didn't forget our sins. No, he acknowledged it. He paid for it. And he offers reconciliation because of Christ's death on the cross. I, I start with what forgiveness is not, and I want to stress that because so much damage has been done to people. When we look at somebody struggling to forgive, when we look at somebody who has had an offense made against them, and we just ask them, just forget about it, it's okay. Like, that doesn't work. That doesn't work with our souls and our hearts. So what is forgiveness? One commentator, one pastor described it like this exchanging an old affection for a new. That's forgiveness, exchanging old affection for a new. But then we can immediately ask the question, how? How do we get to a new affection from an old affection? How do we get to this new affection when that old offense had taken place? I'm glad you asked. Because forgiveness, I think the best way to define it is seen is to look at forgiveness in four steps. We looked at, that, at, at this all weekend long. So again, guys, sorry, this is just recap, but for the rest of the guys in the room, forgiveness has four steps. The first step is the exposure of the offense. The second step is acknowledging the cost of an offense. The third step is pardoning the offense. The fourth step is a restoration of the relationship. Now, just for the sake of time, I'm going to jump immediately to a story on forgiveness, and this is found in Matthew 18. So I hope you put your fingers in your Bible, because we're going to look at the parable of the unforgiving servant. And as we walk through this, I'm not going to pre-read it, we're just going to read it as we go through. What we're going to see is that each of these four steps are present. Exposure of the offense, acknowledging the cost of an offense, the pardoning of the offense, and the restoration of the relationship after the offense. Opens up Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Peter had been with Jesus from the very beginning. He had heard 
all of his sermons, all, had, had, had been able to ask any question that he could possibly want to ask Jesus. We have just a snippet of the conversations in the four gospels. Peter had so much more. And Peter knew that Jesus cared deeply about forgiveness. Uh, there's many passages that we could go to throughout the gospel where, where God commands and demands that we forgive. But one of the things that took place was in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. There's a section where he's teaching people how to approach the, the Lord. He's, he's offering the Lord's Prayer. And this is how he follows up the Lord's Prayer. When you approach God, do it in this way. This is how he ends this prayer in Matthew 6. For if you forgive others' trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh-oh. That seems like a very straightforward statement. If you want God to forgive you, you must forgive. In you forgiving others, you're demonstrating that God has forgiven you. And Peter, knowing this, is going, Lord, how many times? Like, even if my brother does the same thing against me for seven times, I still forgive? Like, how many times do I gotta walk with this joker and give him grace? When's he gonna learn? And what does Jesus say? No, 77 times. Essentially saying, not, you know, keep track, but no, innumerable times for as many times as, as it's needed. Then he gives a parable to demonstrate to Peter what forgiveness looks like in this world. It's this parable. It says this in 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. What's the first step of forgiveness? Exposure of the offense. This king knew I've got debts on my book. My servants have done things that have required me to um, carry an offense, to carry a debt. I want to settle these offenses. I want to make, I, I want to forgive. I want to reconcile. I want to make sure that everyone comes back to an, an, an equal standing before me. So, hey, call all of my servants, figure out what they owe me. Let's reconcile these debts so that we can move on with nothing in the debt column. So he does that. He exposes the offense, exposes the debt. I wish to settle accounts. How's it move on? And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I know for us, we go, oh, that's 10,000 talents, okay. That's interesting. Notice step two, though. He's acknowledging the cost. It's very clear. This is the cost of the debt. This is how much I've been that you've owed me. This is the offense, 10,000 talents. It's a clear accounting of this debt. Now, before we get into what this looks like, all of the commentaries point out the deliberate and unrealistic nature of this sum. Because a talent was the monetary unit worth one year's wage for a laborer. One year's wage was one talent. So let's put this in with our sum so that we can kind of understand what's happening here. If the average American income is $40,000, we're going to do some rough math and some easy math, and he owes 10,000 talents, one year's wage, this means this joker has run up a debt of $400 billion. $400 billion. You can buy a lot for $400 billion. That guy had, you know, eyes too big for a stomach. It's an unrealistic sum of money. I mean, this is... 
more than the gross national income of 80% of the countries of our world. Again, unrealistic number. But Jesus is making a vivid statement about the immeasurable and insurmountable debt that this guy owes. But it's a clear accounting. It's an understanding of this is what you owe me. So what's the guy do? He pleads for forgiveness. And since he could not pay, that's just assumed. You got $400 billion? If you got $400 billion, think of the church. Just saying that. Since this guy could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had. And the payment to be made. Now, is this guy worth $400 billion? No, even if you sell him. But is at this point of like, well, restitution needs to be made. Justice has to be had. So I guess the only thing I can do is, is sell you. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. We're gonna get back to just the ridiculousness of that request. But what does the king do? Out of pity for him, the master and the servant released him and forgave him the debt. I mean, this servant is saying, listen, I'll pay you back everything. It's, but it's, it's not an expression of regret, but an offer for restitution. He has this, in the most sincere way, he goes, I will pay you back. I will replace all of the money that, you're, that, that you owe, that you are owed and your kingdom is owed. But even if he paid back $5 a day, that would take forever. But what does the king do? He releases him. He pardons him. He says, you know what? You're free to go. You don't owe me anything. This has been the craziest thing that really has just blown my mind as, as I've been studying this topic. What happens to the debt when this king releases him? It's not like $400 billion is credited to the king's account and some third party pays it. It's not like this servant has, again, a debt holding over his head. No, he was pardoned. What happens to the debt? The king absorbs it. The king says, I'll take your debt and put it on my ledger. I'll pay for that. That's the crazy thing with forgiveness. Forgiveness means that you absorb the debt yourself. Here's how Tim Keller describes this. He says, to forgive someone's debt to you is to absorb the debt yourself. If a friend borrows your car, totals it through reckless driving, and hasn't any ability to repay you financially, you may say, I forgive you, but the price of the wrong does not evaporate into thin air. You either find the money to buy a new car or you go without. Either way, forgiveness means the cost of the wrong moves from the perpetrator to you to bear it. I just want to stop and emphasize this is the part of forgiveness that I think we miss. When we say, I forgive you, we are saying, I'll take your offense, I'll take your debt, I'll take what you owe upon myself, and I'm not going to credit you with it any longer. I'm not going to assume that you have to pay that back any longer. Me saying, I forgive you, is I'm not going to hold that over your head. Often what we do is say, I forgive you, but then expect them to pay us back. Expect them to make us right. Expect them to love us more. Expect them to try to fill us up. But no, forgiving means that it, we're saying, 
this is the debt I'm going to absorb. I see what you did. I see what happened. I'll take that. And what's the response? Step four, restitution of the relationship. You take the cost of the wrong upon yourself and you say, we're good to go. You're free. Forgiveness then is a voluntary, is a form of voluntary suffering. Hear that. It's a form of voluntary suffering because it's you saying, I lost something. A mistake was made to me. I incurred pain here. I'll carry that for you. In forgiveness, rather than retaliation, you must make a choice to bear the cost. This parable isn't over, though, because we immediately see this servant who was just forgiven an insurmountable debt go out into the world that he lives in. This servant, this is verse 28, but when the same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants, somebody like him, who owed him a hundred denarii, he seized him and began to choke him, saying to him, pay me what you owe. I love the juxtaposition of these two debts because if a talent is one year's wage, a denarii is one day's wage. So, We're talking a couple thousand dollars, something that could be paid off very easily. But he took him and began to choke him and say, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Exact same plea that we saw the guy make to the king. But the servant refused. And he went and he put him into prison until he could pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed Dude, you were, you were forgiven $400 billion and you're holding this guy accountable for a, couple, for a couple thousand? You owed far more than that. When his fellow servants saw that it had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to his master all that had taken place and the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you should, and you, and should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all of his debt. He died in prison. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The man didn't get it. He didn't understand the weight of grace that was laid upon him. Think about just the command of Matthew 6 that we started with looking at Peter. Does this mean that in order to merit God's forgiveness, you have to forgive? No. No, that would make Christ's grace cheap grace or no grace. Rather, it means that to be unforgiving reveals that you have failed to understand and accept God's unmerited grace upon yourself. Just hear hear that again. To be unforgiving means that you have failed to understand and accept God's unmerited grace upon yourself. Yourself. Imagine for a moment the servant understood the grace that he was given. And he walked out of that king's chamber, having been forgiven $400 billion. And he approached his fellow servant. I think here, fellow servant means a fellow servant who is also in debt to the king. Imagine how he should have responded to that guy. Imagine the grace that he should have said, man, 
hey, my king forgave you, me. He'll also forgive you. Hey, I've been forgiven so much, that, that doesn't matter. I, I owed $400 billion. You know what? I'm not gonna hold you accountable for a couple thousand dollars. Imagine the grace that this man would walk forward with and how that would change his life forever because he would continually walk around saying, I should be in prison. I should have this debt looming over my head. I should be killed because of this and yet I was given grace and so now every single breath that I have is given to me as an act of grace. Imagine what this guy's life would look like. That's who we are as the people of God. That's why this series is, excites my heart so much. Because we as members of the kingdom of God, as, the, as family of Christ, have been forgiven so much. We have an, an, an unimaginable love laid upon us. We have a hope that this world cannot comprehend and we walk around this earth and we get to indiscriminately share that love, hope, and forgiveness with every single person we come in contact with. I mean, John 13, we just saw this a couple of weeks ago in, in, in the Gospel of John. He looks at his disciples and he says, they will know you by your love. I also think it's safe to assume and add, they'll know us by our hope. They'll know us by our faith. They'll know us by our forgiveness. And it's a forgiveness that this world will look at and go, why are you doing this? We don't forgive people. We cancel people. We don't forgive people. We make them rot in the position that they're at. We don't forgive people. We hold their offense over their head until the day they die. But we can look at them and go, no, we forgive people because our Father forgave me, us. We can be fellow servants and look at our servants that also owe the exact same immeasurable, insurmountable debt that we owe, that $400 billion, and look at them and go, my king forgave me, he'll forgive you. I just want to leave us with the question this morning, and, and men, this is a question that's kind of to, um, you know, recap all of the weekend. Who do you need to forgive today? As I've been talking about this, I know you're going to have those situations come up. Maybe even you were sitting there and you were thinking to yourself, Ryan, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how much grace I've given them. You don't know how painful the offense was. You don't know what I'm carrying. You're right, I don't. I don't. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. I'm, my, my, my heart grieves for the fact that all of us all of us walk around in this body of death being affected by other people who are body of death. All of us walk around in a broken world and are dealing with garbage. I'm sorry for that. But what rises above all of that is forgiveness. To say, yeah, my heavenly father graciously forgave me, so I'm going to forgive you. So the, again, the question, who do you need to forgive today? Who do you need to proclaim the grace of Christ to by your forgiveness? Who is the Lord asking you to be a living illustration of the gospel with by offering a supernatural grace to. So we turn our attention towards communion. This is a meal that we get to partake of every week. Small meals, two elements. But do you want to know who I don't have meals with? 
I don't have meals with? My enemies. I don't have meals with my enemies. You want to know who I do have meals with? A family. And meals with family, as broken and dysfunctional as families can be, is a comfortable meal. One where we all know that we belong because we all have that same last name. This meal that we get to partake in today, communion, is consumed by the members and the family and the body of Christ. And it's not a meal of enemies. It's a meal of friends and family. And so I would encourage you today with the thought that by you partaking of this meal, saying that this, this is Christ, life, death, burial, and resurrection for me, by you saying this is the salvation that I trust in today, what you're also saying is, I've been forgiven and I am not approaching a throne of wrath and justice, but of grace. If you're here today and you are a believer, take this meal with us and rejoice knowing that you are forgiven. But if you're here today, maybe a friend brought you, maybe you're still, you know, wondering what this whole Christian thing is about and you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm not so sure my debt's been forgiven. When I look at my king, I, am, I, I see wrath being poured out upon me, not love and grace of forgiveness. If that's, where, if that's where you're at at the moment, I would ask that you just let these elements pass you by. Because as I say every week, we don't want them to confuse you. In the same way we don't forgive in order to be forgiven, we don't take of this meal in order to receive the grace of Christ that this meal points to. So I would ask that you Allow it to pass you by, but then come talk to me afterwards so that I can proclaim to you the grace and forgiveness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray we can take this table together. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for the topic of, of forgiveness. Thank you that, that we all can acknowledge the weight that was bearing down upon us that we owed you. An insurmountable weight that we could never repay in a lifetime of, of, of service and sacrifice. But Lord, thank you. We get to be here today. And we get to look to your son who paid the penalty for our sins so that you might be the just and the justifier. Lord, use us to be instruments, salt and light to this dark world, to push out the glory and the hope of the forgiveness that you have so graciously offered to us. Be with us now as we take your table in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.